Okay. Good morning, ladies, and welcome to Torah with the Takeaway. This week's Parsha is Parsha Shmos. This is the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu. This is the beginning of the Shibud Mitzrayim, of the Gullus and Mitzrayim. This is, we're not going to be discussing this topic, but I have taken it up before. The, the main aspect of the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu is Vayar Basivlo Sam. He saw their suffering. That that's, a man raised in a palace was able to empathize with people in a different situation than he was in. But the, the topic I have, I have chosen for today, which I have discussed years ago, but I'd like to bring up again, is a topic we must hear every once in a while. And that is, we're calling today's topic, the importance of being important. The Orchayim HaKadosh says in this week's Parsha that the entire time that Yosef was in Mitzrayim, the Jews were regarded as, you know, as uh, superior, as royalty over the Egyptians. Once Yosef passed away and some of the Shvatim, they were considered equal to the Egyptians. And once that generation, that the, at least the Shvatim passed away, they were considered inferior. And then once the whole generation of that time passed away, they were enslaved. So, the, uh, so we're going to be talking about that. What is that phenomenon about? How can we explain it? Our second question for today is how the midwives, we talk about Shifra and Pua. That was Yechavet and Miriam. That was very interesting. Rashi says, it says in the Pasuk, that the midwives, excuse me, that the midwives feared Hashem. And they, they also allowed, they, they went against, in the face of Paro, and they allowed babies to live. Everybody, Paro said that every baby should be thrown into the Nile. And yet... The, the, these midwives did not listen to him, at least that he wanted all the, the males to be killed. And they would just, you know, help women give birth, be midwives, help them give birth, defy Paro's orders, and Hashem, you know, rewarded them for this. But it's mentioned in the Pasuk that they feared Hashem, they also allowed the children to live. And the report for this they had Kahuna and Malchus. They, they gave birth. They later had the tribes of the Kohanim, the Shevet Levi, and they also had the tribes of um, uh, and, and Malchus. They also had Yehuda. Those were all from Leah, from all from uh, Shifra and Pua. Now, because Miriam married into um, uh, Yehuda. Now, the, um, the, the thing is, though, Rashi says a very enigmatic comment on this. He says, that they would, the re, one was, why do they call themselves by these nicknames of Shifra and Pua? Shifra, she would beautify the child. She would like wash his or her little face and she would, you know, make the child look very nice after birth. And Pua, she would croon or she would sing to the child. Now, the Pusik seems to say differently. The Pusik seems to infer that they were saving lives and defying themselves in the eyes of Paro. Why is this little detail so important, as we mentioned by Rashi? And their nicknames. Like, why aren't they called Yechavet and Miriam? Why are these, like, they should be called Chaya, that they gave life to children, not that they are there, you know, that they crooned the children and beautified them. 
Here's the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu, the most important leader of the Jewish people. And yet, Moshe, Moshe, because I took him out of the water. That's an interesting name forever. Posterity should have that name when there's so much more to Moshe Rabbeinu. He's called by many names in the Torah, but the name given by Basi is what he's usually referred to. Why is that important? Okay, so we're going to now delve into our subject about the things we can learn from the Orachim HaKadosh. The main presenter for tonight is the Helege Reb Chaim Leib Shmulevitz. And I was, I, when I was pregnant with my youngest child, I was so enamored by him. I was reading his biography at the time. And it just so happened that my son was due on his yard site. It didn't quite happen like that. He came, he came into this world two or three weeks later, after, actually. But I was insistent. I fell so in love with the character of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz that I wanted to name my last child after him. Chaim Shmulevitz was called the Sefer Torah of the Mir. He knew the contents of every book in the Mir Yeshiva Library, which is quite big. <laughs> you know, he was a total genius. He fell asleep learning, like he would bang into his pillow, whatever he had learned that day, he wanted to be part of his, his persona. And then when he woke up in the morning, first thing was learning. It's all he thought about was learning, all he dreamt about was learning, all he did was learning. However, well, usually people develop certain sides of themselves, which are wonderful. But the mark of a guttle, the hallmark of a great person, is they develop the other sides of themselves. Usually a great genius is not so strong in interpersonal relationships. They could be a little spacey, you know, <laughs> to get them to just like uh, focus on what we're talking about right now. It was very famous stories, but Rav Chaim, that um, he said he whenever he'd see a woman going out of a shoe store with her child who just got his first pair of shoes, he would cry because he realized his child can walk, can stand up now. You know, the whole way a, a, an infant grows, it, he was just so taken, like how the mother must feel at that point in her life. Once a man came to him telling him he's going blind and Rechaim Shpulevitz cried for 20 minutes with him. He never met, he never knew the man in his life. He just so much felt, he, and he focused, those were a lot of his shiurim, focusing on how you have to think of the other person. The, uh, whenever they'd read Megillus Rus and Shavuos morning and half the men would be like semi, you know, ready to go to sleep already after being up a whole night, Chaim Shlombos would cry when he heard that Rus walked walk barefoot over the stones on her way back to Eretz Yisrael with Naomi. The famous thing though about Rav Chaim, there's two famous those stories about Rav Chaim Lipshmolovitz. I wanted to throw it all in. I figured let's get a background to whom we're hearing this from. And there are other people I'm quoting tonight, but I will mention them by name. But, and when I don't quote, it's from Chaim Shmulevitz. The, um, the story of Entebbe in 1972, I believe, when so many Jews were taken hostage, amongst them of Hutner, said Sal. And it was a very frightening time. People were dying, people were worried about them. There was an Asifa, there was a gathering of people in Yerushalayim to daven for these captives that they should be freed. And amongst these captives was Rav Chaim Shvulevitz. I'm sorry, amongst the people davening was Rav Chaim Shvulevitz. He was supposed to leave the Tehillim that night. So he's making his way up to the podium up in front where he's supposed to say the Tehillim, podium, bima, whatever it was. And he kept pausing in the aisle. He couldn't 
and he starts sobbing like a baby. And all the whole audience became quiet and all you could hear was Rav Chaim, who was a very apparently tall man, broad shoulders, tall man, bawling, bawling for these people. And he started to, he opened up the safe for Tillim, he's about to start dominating, and he couldn't control himself. He's just crying and crying. And he says, imagine if it would be your brother. Imagine if it would be your sister. Like he couldn't contain himself from Chaim. He was just so, so in love with the Jewish people and such feelings for another person. That's what made him so special. The second famous story about Rav Chaim is very famous that in the 67 war, there was apparently, um, there was a gas tank that exploded. And a lot of people had to go down to the bomb shelter. There's a bomb shelter under the Mir Yeshiva. And everybody was down there davening and pouring their hearts up. They kept hearing bombing going on. People were terrified. And, um, the, and everything at the end was safe. Well, apparently somehow they bombed a nearby water tank that put out the flames of the gas tank. And it was a miracle how it all happened. Rokhaim Shalevitz couldn't, uh, he had to take advantage of this moment of inspiration. And he addressed everybody the next day and he told them, I want you all to know that what saved us last night was not the tefillos of the Mira Rosh Yeshiva, not the tefillos of the, the holy people learning Torah, but there was a lady there, a laundress, an aguna, whose husband refused to give her a get. And she was forced to, to make this tremendously lowly type of income for herself, washing people's laundry. And she was often insulted by people. And he heard, he overheard her saying, Rebani Shalilam, for to save Klal Yisrael, I forgive them all. I forgive them all. He says, we were saved in the merit of this aguna. So that's just a little bit about some of the stories of Chaim Shvalevitz. I just, I'm detouring a little bit from my normal topics. I just thought we should have some background. But in any case, um, let's get back to our topic about the, the beginning of Shibud Mitzrayim, the enslavement of the Jews in Egypt. The Orachim HaKadosh, uh, you know, who tells us that the whole time the, the brothers were alive were beyond enslavement and they were, you know, Yosef, they were superior by the, the brothers, they were equal. And then once they died, the Jews were inferior and then finally enslaved. He says, we learned two principles from this Orachim in the beginning of Parsha Shmos. He says, number one, the Egyptians cannot enslave people who are respectable. That's an important principle. And number two, we cannot be enslaved if we're respectable. That's a very important principle to know when dealing with the Sahara. Most sins that we commit, okay, I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted by the things on screen. Most sins are, are, that we commit happen because at that moment we throw faith to the wind and we just say, who cares? I'm not, what I do is, it's not so important. It's insignificant. The moment we consider ourselves insignificant is when we fail. That's what we don't, life is not important. What we're doing right now is not important. What we're saying right now is not important. We're not considering ourselves important. It always ties in, says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, to a moment of sin. There is unwillingness that happens at that moment, insignificantness. And we usually talk about honor seeing big negative, but I once saw something and made such an impression on there. I heard this baby, I don't know how, many years ago, you know, when I was 21, which is about a year ago, um, I heard this said, but in the name of Hutner, and I'll never forget it because it was so important to me. You know, a lot of times we demean the idea of covet, and there is a reason to mean covet. Covet could get in the way and really hurt other people, and we'll, we'll see a little bit about that playing out today. 
But Rav said something very important. He said, you know what? Sometimes if a person feels that they want to be considered special, unusual, if they say the worst thing you could tell a woman is that, oh, your dress looks just like somebody else's or that you look like somebody else. You know, you're, you lose your uniqueness. The reason why a person doesn't want to hear it is Rav says it's simple. He says, when all the world was created, Shem made the zebras, let's say. Some have more stripes, some have less stripes, but more or less, they all are the same. Adam Nivra Yechidi, man was created alone in order that he should say, Bishvili Nivra Ha'olam, in order that he should say, for me, the world was worthy of being created. That's why the world was created for me. A person is unique. There's no two people alike. No two people look exactly alike, even identical twins. No two people think identically, you know, or have the same traits. We all, every person is unique and there's no one else going to be like him. There's no minute going to be like the minutes we're living in now. There's no opportunities given to anyone else but us at every given moment. We're unique. So there is a reason why feels a need for cover, just like there's a need for taiva. If people wouldn't, there wouldn't be children born, there wouldn't be food consumed, people wouldn't preserve their lives if there wouldn't be taiva. There's, so there's a need for honor, self-dignity as well, because self-dignity means you're saying that which is a chazal, we're saying that the world, we have a very big, instead of feeling that we're lowly individuals, we're supposed to feel a sense of heightened, and, uh, heightened greatness, and that brings responsibility. That's what we, if we have something unique to contribute, and where is it? That's what we have to think of. Now, COVID gets us into trouble, says Rav Chaim uh, Shmulevitz, when we start thinking about what other people are thinking of us. That's when we get into trouble. But otherwise, to just think about that we are respectable beings, that's an imperative. We have to think that way. In fact, Rav Yeruch Mulevitz, I know you may have heard these ideas, but we all need to hear them over and over because especially during the times we live in, there's so little that we can do with ourselves now. You know, they said that a lot of organizations have been destroyed. Okay, the new organizations have happened with Hatzalah and things like that, but where's all the Hachnas You know, Bikr Cholam, we can't go to hospitals. But, you know, like the Hachnas Kala, you know, where's the wedding? You know, like Avaya uh, Sameis, we don't have Chesed like we had, the, the proportion, the dimension. Our roles are, are different. Some people's roles are increased, but most of us, I think, are diminished. What are we doing? What can we do already? We have to find what, what we can be worthy of because we really have a mission every moment. It seems like we don't like we used to. We used to have such a mission, a calling in life. And now it seems like there's, what are we here for? You know, so we have to maximum and do even little things are considered important, everything. But for a person to think that they're inferior, you're really insulting the creator. Now, Yosef employed these tactics. He could have told himself when Pote Tifar's wife was changing her clothes three times a day, and she says, do you like my Gavenchi? Do you like my Dior? She was trying so many times to get Yosef in so many ways. Ralph Lauren, Zara. Instead of telling himself, I could burn and get him for this. Nope. Yosef said, what if there's, he said, in our family, a son was chosen to be like the Akeda. What if I'm the next Akeda? This is, he decided at this moment when things were low to employ the idea of I'm amazing. 
I'm great. I could be tremendous. I'm the son of, he saw his father's face. What is his father's face doing? The idea that I'm from such a holy clan, from a holy tribe. How can I succumb to this? This is what was going through Yosef's mind. This is how he controlled himself for a year's time from Asha's Potiphar. Or he said to himself, he knew the story with Ruvain having interfered with his father's marital affairs that Ruvain had moved the beds because for the honor of his mother, Leah. And he said, he said like Ruvain already was not gonna be the Bechor, most likely. Yosef says, I'm, I'm gonna lose my chalik. I won't be on the breastplate of the coin guttel. That's what he kept telling himself. What's gonna be? Uh, maybe I'll be the Bechor now if Ruvain won't be the Bechor. Who's, he kept employing the idea of, I have so much potential, what am I gonna do with it? It'll be lost, you know? This is how we're supposed to, how we're supposed to talk to ourselves. Especially in this generation, it's been said by many, we, we need, of course, Musa, we need to know there's a Gehenim and there's an Olam Haba. Rav Victor Miller says many times that a person has to know that there is such a thing as Gehenim and he should tell his children about it. And he should, he should talk about Olam Haba. These people don't talk about Olam Haba. They talk about Torah mitzvahs, but it's important to tell our children about Olam Haba. And tell ourselves that, the, you know, this is not the end all and be all. This world is a temporary world. Like, you know, like uh, Rav Steinman's Achronel of Racha used to always talk about upstairs and the Rebetzin also. They used to say that this is uh, the false world and the real world is upstairs. What are we going to bring upstairs? Now, the, um, we find this, a similar idea, says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, with the protocol used for witnesses when they testimony, when they give a testimony and based in. If a people have to give um, capital punishment uh, witnessing, you know, they saw somebody commit a murder, lo aleinu. So, and, and you know, of course, capital punishment, it's, 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 there's two of the Ten Commandments involved here, not bearing false witness and not committing murder. This is heavy stuff to be a witness at a capital punishment crime. Kate said, ma'aymim ala edim. How do we, what do we tell these witnesses that are about to testify in order that they shouldn't commit, God forbid, the idea of false testimony? You tell the person, uh, we're just going to paraphrase, a man was created alone. That's what we tell the people that are about to testify. So it says, when somebody, when one Jew is, is lost, he's like losing an entire world. And that's, that's what you're supposed to say to the witnesses that are testifying in Basin about a capital punishment case. If we're telling them how great a person is, how great the soul that was lost was. Now there's a story about Rav Chaim Krasinski. In his day, they're already starting to do all this type of uh, lo The Polish government was allowing, right before World War II, was allowing the whole idea for the sake of science with cadavers, you know, to do all kinds of explorations like like an autopsy, so to speak, with cadavers. And people, you know, they were pressuring Jews into using Jewish subjects. And of course, we're not allowed to have any type of autopsy performed usually. Uh, and then they asked, well, what about Chaim? What about like lowlifes? What about Jewish criminals? Like the worst of our flock, can they be used for the purpose of science? And they said, Rav Chaim Weiser shuddered. And he said, do you know who these neshamas could have been? We don't know who they are. We don't know their greatness. How do we know who they are? If we don't know who they are, 
How can we even touch their bodies? He wasn't even talking halacha. Halacha tzaser. But he just was explaining that we don't know the how great every Jewish person is. You know, the, the greatness inherent inside. Um, and then Rashi says on this Gemara there, mm-hmm. I should consider myself like a whole planet. Don't lose yourself for one sin. You are a whole world. You yourself, don't lose yourself because of one sin you could commit. And this will keep a person from refraining from sin. That's in Sanhedrin Lama Zion for any of you that are very particular with footnotes. Now, what about monetary disputes? In monetary disputes, we're told that we're told by the person, um, it says, if somebody, let's say a monetary dispute, they're supposed to tell the witnesses before they testify, I want you to know the people that hire you, if you tell a lie, the people that hired you are even going to look low, look upon you as a lowly subjects. The reason why a person's so careful about his covet, there's a good point there because there is something there. There is something, a quality, the neshama of a human being that Hashem gave us, and especially a nishma sisral that we have that we can't sully. And that should be the way we approach ourselves to con- control ourselves and keep ourselves from sin. The story I always like to throw in, but Rav Yosef Leib Blach, one of the first Rosh Hashivas of Tells, the, the head of the whole Tells dynasty. And um, he, uh, d- between the World Wars, somewhere or other, could have been World War I, I'm not certain, or could have been before World War I even, somewhere along those lines, you get lost sometimes. Um, the yeshiva in Tells was starving for, for food. All they had to serve the boys at that time was black bread, which was considered somewhat inferior, and they dipped it in oil for a little bit of calories. And that was all they served. And the rumors had it that the Rosh Hashiva was eating on fine china and was not living like the rest of the yeshiva. So in those days, people had more self-dignity than today. You see how people used to dress and everything, but they had more self-dignity. They had a little bit of chutzpah. Why? Because they felt maybe that, you know, we're not going to just back off. Today, there's too much apathy. But in those days, people really cared. They really did something. So a whole group of Bukharim, a whole delegation, went to the Rosh house to see what he did at lunch. So they walked in, they knocked at the door. They said, we heard rumors that the Rosh is eating differently than the Bukharim. And we just wanted to check that out. So he says, please come in. And sure enough, the table was set with fine china and you know beautiful settings. And they saw the Rosh told them to come in. And they were eating black bread dipped in oil. Why were they eating on fine china? Rosh Hashiva told them, Even if you give them, you serve them, a meal like Shlaima HaMelech had in his day, like, you know, Shlaima served everything on his table. He he pulled out all the stoppers. You have not fulfilled your obligation. When you're serving a Jew, you're serving the children of Avram, Mitzak, and Yaakov. So we eat like this to feel dignified. Even though it's just the family, we eat this way to feel dignified. And the Tells dynasty was always about dignity. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Rebetzin Sarotskin, Rebark Sarotskin's wife, Sechran Lavracha, they say during the war years, when they were fleeing the Nazis, they would be going by train or however. She always, when they served lunch, she saved a little piece of cloth from home. She put it out on the table. Now they had almost nothing to eat, but she put it out to feel like 
we're going to eat at mealtimes. We're going to, and I think the mealtimes were the same. No matter what, she tried to keep mealtimes the same to show we're not letting all this get us down. We are going to have things like normal. And in fact, we are dignified human beings and we're never going to lose our dignity. Dignity is so important. And aspiring for greatness is so important. Shraga Five Mendelovitz used to say, if a Jew doesn't look up to the stars, he's going to fall in the mud. Rav Boxed, I've quoted this many times, but I, it's important. Those who haven't heard it before will hear it now. Rav Boxed from Detroit. There's a Gemara that says, Kala Ochel Beshuk, whoever eats while he's walking. I checked this with our local Rav, Rabbi Lowy from Toronto. And he says a person, if it's the, he said it is customary today for people to drink in public, like, you know, like water or something. But eating, you know, like if you're sitting there munching on your ice cream while you're walking, like they do at the exhibition in Toronto or something like that, <clears throat> it says, Doma la Kelev, you're like a dog, but Pustle Edus, and you're not considered to be, you're not a kosher witness in Basin. You can't be kosher for a chuppah. You can't witness something if you're, if you eat in public, like while you're walking, while you're walking around, while you're moving. In other words, if you're not dignified. So says Boxed. If a person's not dignified, their words aren't important. So he's not going to be careful. Every word he says and based in is going to be measured, that it's going to be accurate and it's going to be, he doesn't consider himself important enough that every word counts. If a person has to first initially have that idea of self-importance and only then can he continue and progress in his lifestyle. A person must have that self-dignity at all times to get anywhere in life. Ramatisio Solomon commented many years ago, and it, it applies even more so today, that during the hippie generation, people asked him, like, what's this whole thing with the long hair? In Israel, they have the cuckoos. I think that describes what it really is for a guy's cuckoo to dress like that. And today they have torn jeans. You know, if you look at any pictures of like eight, anything up until, I don't know what, 1950, maybe, perhaps, 1950. I was in a museum once, I was showing a streetcar museum in Pittsburgh, and um, the, every single person, every man wore a jacket and a hat, and we're not talking about the yeshiva world, we're talking about the Goyim. They were all dressed elegantly and, you know, distinctively, and, you know, like to show there was a sense of dignity. He said this whole idea of why that, that generation in the 60s or 50s, 60s, they all of a sudden, you know, people started to dress down and now it got even worse. Not only they're dressing down, but they're, uh, you know, they're torn jeans. He said, the idea is we're not so, you know, we're just like, we're nothing special. So we can do anything. If you're already dressing like an animal, you could act like one. You know what I mean? You, it gives you permission to do anything because you're already considering yourself like a nobody anyways. Somebody told me last year um, that they saw a bunch of that, that that there were a bunch of Basiakov girls that went to Niagara Falls together as a delegation, and they overheard a child commenting, a non-Jewish child saying, "Are these girls princesses?" Because the the idea was when you wear a long flowy skirt, you know, they all wear the long flowy skirt, that you know that must be a princess. You know, so that's, that really shows the importance of Tzniyas. And we have that. That's one of the main reasons that people, they think it's just cover it up. It's ugly. It's such a dignity to be dressed. It's a dignity. So, you know, it just, it, you know, the self-dignity that we get from that. And it starts from the externals. And that's why that, you know, Tzniyas, we have that opportunity as women, especially, and men too, with the, the, the Hasidic Shagar, in the Muslim time of the Muslim movement, the time of Rav Simcha Zizel, 
wanted to reinstate the dignity of Yeshiva Bachrim because there was the Haskalah going on and you know, the uh, enlightenment where people were um, feeling at that time like they were all, you know, the, the, the greatness of opera and symphony and all that. Now it's beautiful. I once went to a symphony with Hannah Cooper. I don't know if she remembers years ago, a student of mine just gave me like fifth row tickets to this Toronto Symphony. It was four days before Pesach. I can't think of a better time to go. I'd never been to one. And it was like, oh my goodness. There's no music that you can hear in the world that compares to being close up to a, to a symphony. The, the, the nuances of every instrument. It was like mind blowing, putting it mildly. And yet... Look at the Quran. Where did it get the world? Where did all these symphonic music and operas and culture and books, where did it get the world? They're still as lowly as ever. They're almost back to the pagan times that where they started, you know, with, with the morality. So all that really got us nowhere. But um, the externals is where we should start. Like when a person, oh, so I was, I interrupted myself. So Rasimhazizel in his day, when they had the Haskalah, they had the enlightenment. What he decided to do was, he, um, he all the boys like would wear top hats and I think they took walking sticks as well. Like this whole idea was in order that people should feel like, you know, dignified. Like that's why they have the Hasidim dress in such garb. This is how the nobility used to dress. And in even the yeshiva world, always a hat and jacket. It's showing a sense of self-dignity. You can't sin when you're this dignified looking person. It's hard to, to, to bring yourself to sin. You know, as a proof, the first thing we feel like doing, ballet, okay. <laughs> the, the first thing we feel like doing when we are um, feeling low is just throw on some, whatever, something in the closet, just throw anything on. But that's the last thing we should do. Really, when we feel down, the first thing we should do is put on makeup that you could maybe take off 10 years minimum. And um, after that, you should get dressed like a person to look, you know, when you look good, you just say, wait a second, look yourself in the mirror. I'm not that bad, you know what I mean? I can't be all that bad. And um, it's also, we're taking care of it, Salomelo Kim, like we, here we have this beauty to ourselves, this gorgeous self. How can we, you know, how can we just throw on anything? We're not just anything. We have it, Salomelo Kim, you know, we can't forget that. This whole theme continues, says Rechaim Shbulevitz. It talks about during the time of the Mishkan, it says, And all men that decided that were, that were raised up to do something came to volunteer to help for the Mishkan. The Ramban says, being slaves, a lot of people had no inkling how to deal with the Mishkan. They didn't know what to do. In fact, Betzalel, who is the chief of the whole operation, the young man, he had no inkling how to make anything. And here he was the chief craftsman of the whole Mishkan because he was the mastermind of the whole thing because he wanted to. I'm going to do it because I want to. You must have heard Holocaust stories about people that would go approach the Germans and would say things like, I know how to be a, a, a maker of bombs or something. People would just volunteer to get out of the lower levels of, of slavery. In, in the concentration camps. I don't know about bombs, I'm making an extreme example, but they would say, I, I'm a tailor, I'm a this. People would try to get this, they would, they would, because they felt they had to, they had no choice. Here, if a person feels, I wanna serve Hashem, he'll give me the, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out what to do. I can do anything if I want to. You know, how many people look at Sarah Schneer, who was a, a seamstress, 
you know, started a revolution because she wanted to. She felt the burning need in her heart that there had to be something for the women so they wouldn't be lost and feeling like only the non-Jewish street is intellectual and interesting and the Jewish world has nothing to offer. Or the famous thing that the Vilna Gaon once said, Asben Vilnar, Ketman Zayna Gaon. If a person only wants, a person could be even a genius in Torah. And so many people just plugged away and they became great, brilliant people. Like the Nassib, very famous story that they thought they would apprentice him to somebody because he didn't seem to be, learning wasn't his strong point. And yet he became the Nassib and a, a huge Rosh Hashiva Velazhin and, and, um, and, 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 and you know, writer of Sparm and all from that desire that he could do it. So Chaim Shmulevit says, that it's interesting, in Parsha Shmini, when we're told not to eat disgusting, creepy, crawly insects, it says, Anochi Hashem I'm the Lord you God, it took you out of Mitzrayim. And Rabbi Shmuel says that Rabbi Shmuel says, comments on this, of this Pasuk, he says, if the only purpose to take the Jews out of Mitzrayim is not to eat lowly bugs, it's enough. And Rechaim Shalava says this means, eating bugs means, look, I'm a, I'm a nothing. I'm a nothing. You know, I'm, I'm one of a million people and, you know, so I eat bugs. I'm like a worm. I'm like a frog. I'm like a this. You know, to bring yourself to eat these lowly creatures. Now, of course, we don't do it because it's a hoax. We do it because not a, but that mention at the end is, it's to teach us a lesson that we're supposed to regard ourselves as great individuals and not to defile ourselves in lowly pursuits. Rav Shimshim Pincus itself tells us that when Moshe Rabbeinu appeared to Paro, the first words he was told to say to Paro were, now you'd think he's gonna say, watch your back, I'm here, I'm coming. Nope, he says, Bani Bechori Yisrael. My eldest, my most precious, beloved child are the Jewish people. Moshe had to say that because, the, first of all, he had to hear those words. That gave him the courage to continue his speech. And Paro had to hear this. He probably knew it too. When we consider us ourselves respectable, people don't have to remind us. Don't we want to mingle with everybody else and feel like we're part of them? That's when the troubles start for us in Golis. He gives an example. A father comes to the Rebbe in a cheder, knocks on the door and just wants to take a you know, spot check how his son is doing in a cheder. So the, the Rebbe answers him, the class is doing fantastic. He says, but where's my uncle? He's not, he's not here right now. So how's he doing? I came here to see about my son. I didn't care about the rest of you. B'ni b'chori Yisrael means that Hashem, care, even though the Jews were in the depths of despair, it looks like we were persecuted. We were having it worse than the rest of the world. Hashem in his uppermost thoughts is always about the Jewish people. Hashem Shempinkas mentions also how important it is, you know, covet, dignity, how much we have to have dignity for Hashem. You know, um, I've mentioned this before. I believe Rav Nassim Vachovel Zetzal mentions this. It says, everything about Hashem screams honor. And we mention the word honor so many times in our davening, in Kedusha. We say, the world is filled with his honor. His world is, what does it mean, honor, 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 all over the place in Kedusha? So Nassim Vachokal explains 
What does honor mean? Importance. Kulo omer kavod. Everything is important. Everything is meaning. Like it's a word kaved, which means heavy. Everything has deep, important meaning. Every action, every nuance, every everything. He was talking about people have to be more careful when they pronounce Hashem's name, like in a bracha. A lot of people don't say it right. Like, you know, I've heard a lot of Bali Tshuva say, Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharis, Mimelech, Malachi Hamlachem. Some people say Hashem is like the king of the angels. That's wrong. Melech, Malachi Hamlachem. Saying the words right of davening is very important. Or Kiddishanu. It's supposed to be Kiddishanu. You know, different words like that, we just are zipping through and we, we fail to think the words are important because we're talking about Hashem. Or we're saying his name. One time, if Shimshim Pincus heard somebody say a bracha, mispronouncing a Shem's name, and he told this boy, no, that wasn't the proper pronunciation. So the boy said, what sin did I commit? Did I say a blessing in vain? Was it stealing? Like, what did I do wrong? And if Shimshim Pincus said, the worst thing you did wrong was you didn't give a Shem proper dignity by saying his name properly. So we're supposed to have this kulo omer kava. We're supposed to give kava to others. Like we're told in Mishnah Avas. Ezehu mechabed, hamechabed es Who is honorable? He that honors others. Because that shows that we see that honor in everyone. We see that selam elokim in everyone. That, that image of God in everyone. Now as an aside, I had to throw this in because it just contradicts what we just said and we have to explain it. It's beautiful. Of Kappelman's itself from Lucerne says, if it's, you know, like he says, like, you know, if we hear Shrutzim, like uh, eating bugs is such a lowly thing. And that's one of the, even though there's not a reason, it's a Tom, it's a, it's a, it's a small reason why we don't eat bugs. Why does it say when the Jewish people multiplied, multiplied, it says Paru, Verabu, Vayishritsu, they multiplied and they were like, they were swarming. That's how it's translated, but it means they were like insects. Like swarming, like a used sheretz is the, the root of Vayishrithsu. If it's so horrible, so why is the Jewish uh, population growth considered like swarming? And Rashi says that there were six at once, that it was similar to bugs, whatever. But why do we have to use this thing about Jewish people? So it says that the reason why they were enslaved, it's explaining their enslavement. It says, but to it says the Gashmias filled their souls. What filled them? The, instead of they were, they filled the world. It says they, they, they multiplied and they were, they, they were like swarming like insects and they filled the world. That's what the verse means literally. But he says, we take it figuratively. The land of Egypt, which was very immoral, filled them. It was filling, it was filling them up. How much of us is filled up by the world around us? How much of the world around us are we letting penetrate our souls? And then it filled them up. So that's why it said by Yishritsu. They became like lowly because they let the world fill them up. So it fits in perfectly with what we said in the beginning, with what we're saying all along. Like when you feel lowly, then you succumb to lowly things. And that's what he says. It was, they were filled up with this lowliness of Egypt. They wanted to be like the Egyptians. So because of that, what happened was that they, that by Yishritsu, they just, they swarmed like everybody else swarms. There was nothing unique about being a Jew. But Yosef Hayab Mitzrayim, 
Yosef was in Egypt. He was the same Yosef that was the tzaddik. And he, from the beginning to the end, there was a man, if you imagine it, the Jews moved to Goshen. Until the Jews came, he was alone with all the Egyptian people, the lowliest immoral people, never losing his restraint and his superior, uh, you know, morality of being one of the tribes of Israel. And then later, he withstood the test like a Yosef. Even when somebody insults us, says Rav Victor Miller, when you, when you were insulted by somebody, and that's going against your Tzalem a Jew should not be insulted. How can you insult another Jew? A Jew is made in the image of God. How can you insult somebody made in the image of God? So you have to look at that person as right now he's not acting with a, with a, with a spark of divine, uh, a divine, his divine spark is not with speaking. He's speaking from his animal side. He said, you have to imagine it like a cockroach screaming at you or a frog speaking at you or a, a, a croaking at you or a dog barking at that person right now. I'm not hearing a human voice. I'm hearing a cockroach voice. Now, of course, we later on when the, the heat of the moment passes, if they said anything relevant, we should think that I really do anything wrong. But the way to have to insult another person and come across like that, you're not speaking like a, a dignified human being at that moment. You're not speaking like a human being at all. Now, how does it manifest itself, the greatness of a person? How can we get it? By A, not letting insults bother us. By B, the externals. How important the externals, dressing in a dignified way, manner, trying to speak in a dignified manner. You know, speaking with, uh, you know, it, it's very coarse language is just not behooving any type of Jew. And the small things are really what count. Person doesn't give greatness to a person until he checks them with little things. All our forefathers were checked. How did you deal with sheep? You know, that they carried them on their shoulders and they made sure the, 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 the weaker sheep got fed first, you know, and that's what brought them to all become great leaders. The small things, because you inject in those small moments an idea of importance. Everything counts, even sheep, even the way you tie your shoes, everything. And they're injecting that. The pillow was, in, you know, the, the Bitachan hotline tells us you're allowed to think about Hashem in the bathroom. You're not allowed to think Sukim or Torah, but you're allowed to think, you know, like said Hillel, when he was in the bathhouse, he would say, I'm going to wash the face of Atzalem Elohim. He didn't say Atzalem Elohim, but he's unwashing the face in the divine presence, in the divine image I'm made, you know? We have all these opportunities in the morning to pump ourselves up when we're davening. We say, Asher bachar kol hamim. Not to feel like we're superior, but we have more greater expectations of ourselves. Or the neshama that you personally gave to me is pure. And, you, and you're going to take it personally from you. And you gave it to me. And you cultivated it. You, you fashioned it. You gave me the nose I'm supposed to have. You gave me the eyes I'm supposed to have. All those things, all those little things, those little things count. Although it makes us remember how important everything we do is. Moshe Rabbeinu became great, says um, says Rav uh, Shmulevitz. There's 60 years with no mention of Moshe Rabbeinu. He was a fugitive, Dustin and Avirim, he ran away from them. And that's when he became the great Moshe Rabbeinu. We hear him first rebuking them, and 60 years later, he's 80 years old, and he's the great Moshe Rabbeinu already. When he was a fugitive, when he was away from Jews, that's when he became great. 
a person, if they utilize their time properly and their assets and their situation, their life properly, everyone has the potential of becoming great. We're told that the snack, at the burning bush, Moshe Rabbeinu said something. He sees this bush consumed and it doesn't burn. He said, Asurinava ere. Um, I'm going to turn around and look because this is very interesting. And the Sephardo says, Moshe Rabbeinu was not your typical Jew because why did he want to see this bush? It said it reminded him of the Jewish people, that they're constantly being humiliated and hurt and pursued and tormented, and yet they're never being consumed. This reminded him of the Jewish people, and he thought there maybe was a message within. At that moment, he got his first nevuah. When he turned away to, to ponder, to think about Hashem, in a moment that most people would think, oh, it's electricity. Can I benefit financially from this? What can I tell my friends about what I just saw? You know, instead, he used this as a moment of communion with Hashem, a moment to think about Hashem, and that's the moment that he merited Nevoa. They say about Kimchas, this special woman who became the mother, I, I believe, 13 Kohanim Gedolim. Why did she merit such greatness? Just because the walls never saw her hair. But Ramesh Belevitz says, not to be looked at as, you know, like ultra frum necessarily, but ultra dignified. Like even when she was in private quarters by herself, she felt like I'm, I'm dignified all times. Like she never wanted to let down the guard of being, you know, of being a dignified human being, you know? And, and that's what made her great. One, uh, okay, so we've, so we've said so far, we're just talking about the importance of being important, how that's gonna, it keeps us from sin, it makes us preserve who our character is, how we are, it remind it, it, it really, it really, and, and externals is the way to begin with it. Giving honor to other people is, it, you know, if we're giving honor to other people, it reminds us how people are honorable and we're part of the human race. And especially a Jew, especially Hashem, you're honoring Hashem who created, because if Hashem created monkeys, I mean, if people are supposed to be low lives, then Hashem did a bad job. We're supposed to know Hashem did a perfect job with everybody. So they deserve our honor. It's, it's, giving us a way to have more honor in ourselves is to honor others. A third way perhaps to pursue the trait of giving ourselves, to make ourselves more honorable mention is not to rush. Uh, Ruvain lost Kahuna and Malchus. He lost being the father of the, the Jewish people, being the Bechor, being the eldest. He would have gotten two tribes or that he would have had that being the Kohanim would have come from him. The, the, the kingship would have come from him. He lost it because Pachas Kamani was impetuous. That was only a mere trait. It was a little thing. It wasn't like major, but he, he, he wasn't thinking when he did something. He was too quick to rush. And that's what made him do something. Rushing also shows that we want control and we want to grab it. We're not allowing Hashem to rule us. But on top of that, rushing shows you're losing your dignity. You're losing your dignity. It's something we have to keep in front of our minds always, that we are dignified people and we deserve to act in a dignified manner. Perhaps the hook between Parsha's Vayechi and our Parsha is, you know, there's always, every Parsha connects, there's usually something at the end and something in the beginning. So I'm suggesting perhaps the, the rebuke given to the tribes before they passed away, before Yaakov passed away, 
He was rebuked for being hasty. And Rav Nevin Salshlita says something phenomenal. He said, you know, the, the, the episode where he either messed up the bed or he moved the bed out of Bilha's tent and moved, you know, moved it to his mother's tent, whatever it was, happened when Yaakov was 99 years old. And we know that from the verses. It says, that actually he heard about what Reuben had done at the time. But he did not rebuke Reuven until he was on his deathbed. Phenomenal. Unbelievable. Rashi says, why? Because he was afraid that Reuven would belong, would move over to Asaph's camp if he would be rebuked. So he waited. Yaakov Avinu waited 48 years to rebuke his son Reuven for what he had done with Bilam. Now it's going to hook into what we're saying now. We'll see in a minute. Now, now Asaph, Asaph, he's going to want to become Asaph. Reuven was a holy, Reuven was the antithesis of Asaph. Asaph was into murder and, and stealing. Reuven, even when he picked the jasmine flowers for his mother, he waited until it was harvest time. And these kids considered, you know, things that dropped to the ground. He was so careful not to engage in any aspect of stealing, you know, you know, and not, not even stealing from a non-Jew. Uh, a holy man, Ruvain. How could it be to even entertain the thought of going along with Asaph because of her rebuke? And doesn't it say in the 48 ways to wisdom, the 48 ways to acquire Torah, one of the things is liking rebuke. Why didn't he want to take it? So Rav Nevenzel says, of course, he wouldn't initially go just run off with Asaph. No, that for sure. But in his mind, there would be a slight allegiance to Asaph. Why? We learn, and we learn, this is a very important principle. They say about Lot, says of Nevensal, that after Avraham rebuked Lot and his shepherds, you know, Lot's shepherds were rebuked by Avram's shepherds for letting their camels and sheep graze in other people's fields, Lot left Avraham shortly after for Sodom. Sometimes people can't take rebuke. And we have to be sensitive to other people, have that cover, that sensitivity, to be careful how we talk to other people. And it should give us pause in general. When we're hearing how you're supposed to talk to witnesses of based and tell them that the world was created for you, it's so important when we're talking to children. If we have to rebuke a child, you know, the famous story about the Tursky dynasty, that the, 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 the head of the Tursky family who begat all the famous Tversky's that we know of today, he used to always tell his children, it's past nished. It's, it's beneath you to engage in such a behavior. That um, a person has to think that I'm too big for this. I, I'm, I'm above it. I, I, I can't lower myself for such a thing. That's how we should talk to our children. We have to be so careful to wait 48 years to give the proper rebuke. For sure we can't do it when we're angry. Famous stories about Ravelli Olapian would wait two weeks to rebuke a child if, if before he'd wait, think he, you know, if he was angry or not. And that's Chinuch Habanim. And, um, you know, but this is, we're talking about a full grown, he was fully grown at the time, to wait 47. He felt for some reason he would, ex he maybe even would have accepted Yaakov's message. Maybe he would have accepted the rebuke. But yeah, and, and you know, and, and it's a big thing to think about because, you know, he could have grown from it. He could have learned from it. Well, we do know that Reuven was engaged in tshuva from that moment on. 
He was engaged in tshuva the whole time of Mechiris. When they sold Yosef, the whole many years, he was, he was doing tshuva for what he did wrong. So he saw he knew what he was doing wrong. So he didn't feel it was worthy to rebuke him all the years. He's being very careful to give Musser. We find two Moshe Rabbeinu waited 40 years to rebuke the Jewish people till he was on his deathbed. David HaMelech didn't rebuke certain people till he was on his deathbed. It seems to be a classical way that Jewish leaders conduct themselves. To teach us, we can't always pick out all the negative, all right now. Some people, you know, there was a famous Mashkiach, uh, they wrote a whole book about him, a huge book called The Mashkiach, about Meir Chadash, Zechran Levracha, from Hebron Yeshiva. He was really something special. He had a principle. He was very expert as expert educator. And his feeling was he would never rebuke a student at all, period. And this is closer to our generation. He never would say a word because he felt that the, the boy has to maintain his dignity. If he doesn't maintain his dignity, he's going to give up all hope and go off the other deep end. How many kids are off the derrick today because of a teacher or a Rebbe or a parent screaming too much at them? You know, okay, I'm still saying there are tremendous parents out there that had a child that just was in the wrong crowd and, you know, it had other reasons, you know, but there are many people today, they couldn't do so well in school and they didn't have a sense of dignity. A lot of people, we know a lot of people that can't succeed in learning, have a hard time maintaining their from kite. You know, it's, a, um, it's, it's an idea, for, if, he, if he felt it was important to rebuke a student, he would say it in general to the whole yeshiva. He wouldn't, he would say a speech, uh, you know, Mr. Schmooze. He wouldn't take him aside and rebuke him. And I'm not saying we have to take this necessarily. Each person has to know themselves, but we can't, you know, it's a very common thing people do. I forgot what it's called in psychology. Maybe if any of you know, you can let me know on the chat later on. There's a certain thing in psychology that people do when they, when they get to arguments. Like if you're upset at somebody, you tend to pile on everything you know about them since they were born. You know, and you didn't do this last week, and you didn't do this the week before, and you, you know, like this crushes a human being. And we just said a person cannot do well unless they feel like they're cherished, unless they feel they're accepted for who they are, no matter what. That we can't replicate a parent who has unconditional love, but let's say with spouses and with other people, you know, we have to conduct ourselves. We have to look away from the, from the, the negativity and, and, and for the small things to appreciate another person, appreciate ourselves, not to pick out ourselves for every little thing. We have to, we, you know, we, we have to, um, a person needs covered so desperately. Hill Hazakin was once running in front of a chariot because it was a man who lost all his money and he felt he needed the covet. Covet could make a person go crazy without covet. You know, we need every person, we, for ourselves, we have to minimize searching for, for honor. We can pump ourselves up and give ourselves the honor, just knowing that we're Jews, just the knowing we're human beings. But um, for other people, we have to give them all the covet. This is the way to do it. that there was a certain person that was really a son of a very holy Tana that was engaging in lowly behavior, the Rabbanim decided to give him smicha. They figured by giving him smicha, he's going to rise to the, the event. He's going to rise up for that. So it's very important that, uh, that a person realize that we have to build people up.
who more than Yeravim Benavat? They say about Yeravim, Yeravim was the one that he turned it to the base of Migdash and he served idolatry. What did Hashem do? Oh, they say, by the way, he wasn't such a low life to have to be the head of 10 tribes. He was a somebody. They said his Torah was in Boshum Dofi. His Torah had no falsehood in it. That's how good his learning was. And it said all the people of his generation compared to him were like Isve Hasada. They were like grass in comparison to him, in comparison to him, except for Shlomo HaMelech and Achia Shiloni. He, that's how great he was. He was a great man. But he went up. So what did Hashem personally came to him in a dream and said to him that, you know, come, just give up this whole thing with your doing, taking away the 10 tribes and you and me and Ben Yishai and David will travel to get, will go together in Gan Eden. So what does he do? You know, he's, Hashem is bringing him in through COVID, through COVID, you know, now, I don't, you know, they stay. Some people say that the reason we have COVID-19, there is a lack of COVID. <laughs> Remember that. There's a lack of COVID in our generation. Anyways, so he says, me, Barosh, too bad he's comparing himself with other people. Too bad. Once you compare yourself, that's where you get into trouble. But to say that I'm a dignified person, I'm made in the image of God, that's a principle in Judaism. Bishfilini v'ra'olam, the whole world would have been created just for me. You know, of course we have to make a cheshben hanefesh, and we have to check into ourselves, and we have to love ourselves. We have to love ourselves, but we've not, kamocha means you can't get stuck on the yourself. <laughs> we have to love ourselves and then spread the wealth. We love all Jews. We love all people. Vayelech ishmi base levi, a man, an anonymous man came from base levi and begat Moshe Rabbeinu to teach us, any of us, could be worthy of having a Moshe, says the Osnayim Torah. Any of us could have a, a Moshe Rabbeinu. Every person, Rambam says, every Jew is a chalik and olam haban could be as great as Moshe Rabbeinu in his or her way. Each person. That doesn't mean we have Hashem talking out of our throats. We weren't given those tools. But the, with the tools we have, we can be the greatest. Just like a Moshe Rabbeinu. And um, that's how the Miyal. The crooning, they did the singing, they did the. Be- they made it dignified, making something If we think of the positivity that we can do, the positivity, everything, do it in a, think of a positive way, as positive spin to correct ourselves. That's the best way to correct ourselves. I'll just end with the story, beautiful story that is a few years old, but uh, I love it. And it was amazing. There's the Rabbi Haber that I believe lives in Muncie, if I'm not mistaken. He's somehow involved with Kiruv. And he was driving along from um, to the Catskills for a Shabbaton. And on the way back, he was starting to get tired at the wheel. He sees in the distance that there's uh, some kind of convenience store open in the middle of the night. So he goes in there to buy himself a coffee. 
And when he gets there, he sees this man with like unruly hair, like all over the place. And uh, he's, he's coming up to the counter. The man says to him, Shal uh, he says to him, oh, you know, Shalom Alecha, you know, peace be on to you, my brother. And um, I realize it's an Israeli, and you know, dressed like uh, with an afro and the whole thing there. So he answers him, Aleichem Shalom. And he says to him, the Israeli answers to him, you think you're a rabbi, you don't even know Israeli grammar, Hebrew grammar. He says, I dressed you in the singular, Shalom Alecha, peace be to you, and you say Aleichem Shalom. In fact, why do you always, why do you always say, all you Jewish, religious people always say Shalom Aleichem? You know, then why do you always say in the plural? And Rabbi Haver answers him, he says, you know why? He says, we say that in the plural whenever we see a Jew, because whenever a Jew walks down the street, whenever anything you've done in your life, you create angels. All the, the, all the mitzvahs you do in the course of a day is, is angels walking with you. I have this picture. Um, I forgot what his name was. Kassmacher, Sopranlebracha. There was this French painter that lived in Svas named Katzmacher, Yaakov Katzmacher, Balchuba, very, very impressive bearing. And he drew a lot of like beautiful little, I have a print I got in Svas and I loved it because he has a picture of a Jew going along the street and all these letters of, of, of Torah, well, Hebrew letters are in the air around him as he walks. That's the same idea. He says that, you know, we're surrounded with the thoughts we have of Kedusha and the thoughts we have of holiness and greatness. We're not just walking like an animal walks down the street. We're walking like a Jew. He says, so much holiness, we're greeting the malachim when we greet a Jew. That's why we respond to a Jew in the plural. So he has a long pause for that one. And he says, thank you and whatever. They exchange uh, the money and everything. And he leaves the store. Several weeks later, it's late at night again. He's again on the same route. He goes to the same convenience store, same Israeli. And this Israeli says, I don't know if I want to see you in this store. He says, what do you mean? He says, last week when you came in and you gave me this whole speech about how when a Jew walks, he has malachim walking with him. Usually at this time of night, I get hungry. I go over to the, to the, uh, the area where they have the sandwiches, the fresh sandwiches, and I take myself a ham sandwich. I couldn't bring myself to eat a ham sandwich that night because I kept thinking there are malachim standing next to me. So he says that from then on, I've been keeping kosher because I couldn't, I couldn't bear my, bring myself to eat something not kosher when there's malachim around me. So you see how much we could pump people up by telling them how great they are and how much Hashem loves them. You know, I used to do something with my kids. I made a happiness book. Um, every night we'd sit down together before they went to bed and think of one good thing, how Hashem loved them that day. You know, I did it a little late when the kids were getting too old already. I should have done it, but I never heard about it until then. But all of us can keep thinking every day what Hashem did for us that day, how much he loves us, how special we each are. And from that, we can build up and become really people of greatness. I thank you for listening. And I hope you realize the importance of being important. Thank you.